Okay, we are starting a new book. We're starting the book of Galatians. And remember, the plan is to look at the book of Galatians and then come in and out with Jesus' encounters of other folks in the Gospels. So we're going to be mixing the two. Last week, we looked at what the church is all about. Last week, we looked at why Redeemer Presbyterian Church exists. And it's what we talked about up here. It's about making disciples. It's about gospel growth in people's lives. Okay? From beginning and entrance to continuing and encouraging and to sending out to the fame of God. All right? Today, we're going to look, we're going to start with Galatians. We're going to start with the book. And here's how we're going to do it. There is a church called City Church, and it had many, many problems. There were divisions in this church. They were tearing the heart of the church apart. There were groups that had formed around different leaders that had different visions for the church. So you can imagine these different leaders forming different groups around them, pursuing different visions in the church. And in doing so, you can imagine the, the power plays that would go on in this type of a situation. You can imagine how people seek to manage and control their own agendas and their own visions. And of course, all these groups thinking they're doing it for the good of the church. Uh, critical and harsh emails became the normal form of communication in this church. Jealousy was rampant. In other words, leaders and members were functionally trusting in ministry success and people's applause for their sense of worth and value. So they were jealous because they would look around at the, and compare themselves constantly with everyone in the church in terms of their ministry influence and ministry success, and of course, when comparing the ones that seemed to have greater ministry success, they were jealous of. So jealousy was rampant. Arrogance was also uh, the norm in this church. And the, where the arrogance was showing up is that people actually began to believe in this church that there were things they had they didn't receive from God. Things like just even their natural spiritual gifts, their financial well-being, their spiritual growth, their relational blessings, just the pleasant circumstances and situations that came into their life. They began to think that this did not come directly from the hand of God, but actually something that they had out of their own resources and something that they had done amongst themselves that they were responsible for. The other thing about this church is sad to say that there was sexual immorality was openly present. Uh, there were practices taking place sexually that even the unchurched in the community were saying, that's horrible. Church members in this city church were taking other church members to court. Lawsuits were normal. Suing each other was the norm. There seemed to be no ability within this church for people to sit down and resolve conflict. Not only no ability to do so, there was no desire to. It was conflict, boom. Take him to court. The city church held citywide, not citywide, churchwide feast to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we, we, you know what we do up here, those of you that are familiar, but what they would do is they would have an actual feast with lots of food and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper within there. And what began to happen is people began to take the communion wine beyond a glad heart 
that the Psalms talk about to the effect that they couldn't drive home. Now, First Church, not City Church, is a good church. Bible-believing folks, orthodox in their theology, the majority of people pursuing a unified, clear vision for the church, from the leadership down to the volunteer nursery workers. Everyone had a, a ministry mission that they were committed to. The programs and the ministry teams at this church were firing on all cylinders. Worship attendance was very high. People attended worship regularly. The, the worship service was of very high quality. Most members practiced personal devotions. Most members practiced personal prayer. Most members tied 10% of their gross income before taxes to the church. For some of you, that's always a discussion. Do you tithe what you get after your tax or before your tax? They kept the Sabbath, the folks in this church. Personal holiness was energetically pursued. Personal holiness and, and standards and morality were very valued among this group. In fact, there was no tolerance for an easy believism. In other words, kind of having a devil's faith. You intellectually understand it, but then you live like the devil. There was no tolerance for that kind of living. No tolerance for contrary lifestyles in this church. All right. This is a tale of two churches. The city church, which is the church at Corinth. And Paul wrote two letters to that church. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The second church is a typical church in Galatia. And Galatia was a Roman province in modern-day Turkey. And those were the first churches that Paul planted on his missionary journeys. Antioch of Pisidia. You might remember we did this in Acts. Iconium, Lystra, Derby. You remember those churches? Those were the first churches in Paul's missionary journey that were planted in this area. And those were the good churches that Paul planted. Now, if I were to take a quick poll this morning amongst us, or a major Gallup poll and all the churches in the United States, and I was to say this, we were to ask, which church is better off? Which church is in a better position spiritually? Which church is more in line with the Holy Spirit? Which church do you want to bring your family to? Oh, that's a no-brainer. Isn't it? Good night. I'm taking my family and we're going to Galatia. Right? Aren't you? No-brainer. No-brainer for us here. No-brainer for the United States. Now... What I am about to say is the craziest, looniest thing I think I have said in a long time. And for some of you are like, oh no. For some of you, this is going to be the craziest thing you've ever heard in church. Paul, and because of his apostleship, God, Paul, because of his apostleship, God, would choose Corinth. 
So welcome. <laughs> welcome to the good churches in Galatia. Welcome, welcome to the book that your Protestant roots are grounded in. In other words, besides Romans, the book of Galatians is the most significant book in the Protestant Reformation. So if you consider yourself a Protestant, if you even know what that means, in other words, generally today there's, there's the, kind of the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and then the Protestant Church. Those are kind of the three main areas, branches of Christianity. If you count yourself in a Protestant direction, and that means every denomination that's Protestant, your roots are grounded in the book of Galatians. Welcome, welcome to the very heart of Christianity. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Galatians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. I know in the bulletin it doesn't have a title. You'll get the title by the end. It's the point of the passage. Paul, I'm going to give you the literal translation. You ready? Paul, apostle, not. Now that's a way to begin a letter. Not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we, um, we need to hear your message in this book. Your church needs to recover the message in this book. Lord, I do tremble because I feel like we are we're entering into the heart of it all. And that you gave this book as the very heart of it all, a mini Romans, so to speak. And so, Lord, I ask that you would unleash heaven on us. I ask that you would be shining on the page, that you would grant great assistance to the preaching and power to your gospel and life to your people. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first of all, I know I have to prove that crazy thing I just said. Okay? Three quick proofs. Are you ready? This is what we're proving. That Paul, and because of his apostleship, God would choose City Church, the church at Corinth, over First Church, the churches in Galatia. Okay? Three proofs. One is Galatians is the only letter that Paul doesn't have a standard greeting for. He does have it for 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He doesn't have a warm greeting for them. In other words, his normal greetings go like this. He greets them, and then he thanks God for them. This is a normal, typical Paul uh, letter. He greets them, he thanks God for them, and then what he ends up doing is he praises God for a specific work that he sees in their life. 
like what we just saw in Colossians. So he, he greets them, he thanks God for them in a very warm, personal, pastoral way. And then he goes on, and because he knows these folks so well, he thanks God and praises God for a specific work that God is on the move in that particular congregation. Now, again, here's how he begins Galatians. Literally, Paul, apostle, not. Paul comes out swinging. I love Paul. He comes out picking a fight. Now, what's going on here is that New Testament scholars are absolutely unanimous. Paul is very upset. Very upset. And so this might be a side of an apostle that some things that we're gonna, he's actually going to say in this book are going to shock the daylights out of you. If I actually said it in the language of the day, you'd blush. So that kind of shakes up spirituality a little bit too for us. Now, he's very upset. Here's the second proof. Notice his response. I'm going to give you a quick response to the church in Corinth. In other words, all those problems, when he writes his letter to them, here's how he responds to them. He's not shocked by what's happening in their church. You know what he does? He re-preaches the gospel to them. In other words, he brings in more gospel persuasion to bear, not just on their behavior, but he starts targeting the functional trusts in their heart. And he starts bringing the gospel powerfully, persuasively, personally to bear on their heart's trusts, functional trusts, because he sees that the gospel brought to bear on the heart changes the life. So he didn't write church policies. He brings the gospel to bear on the human heart in a very powerful and persuasive way. That's what he does in Corinth. In other words, he's basically saying, listen, Corinth, the problems that are arising in the church are arising from a lack of continual, ongoing, living encounter with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, Corinthians, believe the gospel. And then he goes on to say, now those of us that those, of, those that are among you that are openly disrupting the church with sexual immorality and they, and they don't repent and they don't want to believe the gospel, they refuse to do so, here's how you deal with it. Okay? Now, watch how he responds to the churches in Galatia. You ready? Look at verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, I'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says things like, you're deserting Christ, you're turning to a different gospel, you're distorting the gospel, anathema. And he says it two times. Accursed means anathema, and it's an Old Testament word. And what it means is this. If someone is to pronounce anathema or be accursed, the literal picture is fire falling down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. The picture is the Israelites going into the promised land and exterminating the Canaanites. The picture is when something's accursed, when something is 
uh, anathematized. It has been set aside, not for grace, but set aside for divine terror. Okay? So I hope you begin to see my picture. The picture here is three proofs that, that the church that is more favorable in a more favorable position in the eyes of God is not the good church. Wow. Okay, now, here's the point in all this. It's the big point of the whole letter to Galatians. You ready? Here it is. The church stands or falls not on the basis of how clean or how messy its members are. The church stands or falls on the basis of its faithfulness to the gospel alone. So if I was to like shorten that point into a memorable statement, here's the title of the sermon. Everything hangs on the hope of the gospel. I mean everything. So Redeemer Presbyterian Church, we stand or fall on the hope of the gospel. Our worship, our nurture, our witness, our leadership, our wick, our ministries, our gospel growth in people, our impact here, our pastoral care here, everything about this church hangs on the hope of the gospel alone. Personally, if we were to personalize it, we would say, your personal well-being, your spiritual and psychological well-being, the driving, defining longings and needs of your soul well-being, your families and your relationships hang on the hope of the gospel alone. Okay? All right. Why? Why does everything hang on the hope of the gospel? Paul's going to spend this whole letter telling us why. So it is kind of a buckle your seatbelt. We're in for a, a, a long ride. He's going to tell us why everything hangs on the hope of the gospel. But right from the beginning, he tells you this in the introduction. So we're just in his, his, that small greeting. If you call it a greeting, that small introduction, he gives you, he gives you like a, a welcomed cup of cold water to your face. And I say welcomed because it's a cold water that wakes you up to life and freedom. And when it hits your face, it's like, yes! <laughs> you know, those old commercials, the dude that used to shave his face and put the, well, it, put the stuff on his face and, ah! What was that? Home Alone did that. Ah! That's what this is. This is a wake-up call, but it actually feels good. Okay. Now listen, the more I study Paul, here's, I got to be honest with you, the more I study Paul, the more I begin to wonder, would Paul make it as a pastor today? You know, because as I, I study him, I see he's missing that one crucial skill for a pastor today. He lacks this gift. Do you know what the gift is? Subtlety. I have a friend that says, look, he would say to Paul, Paul lacks the ability to step on your shoes without messing up your shine. He just can't do it. It's step, that hurt. And now I got my shoes all scuffed up, right? Paul lacks that at all. Paul doesn't walk around with an approval alarm like a smoke alarm attached to his heart. 
that every time his approval ratings go down, beep, 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 Paul doesn't have one of those. How do we know? Well, just one example. Chapter 2, verse 11. Here's Paul. When Cephas, that's Peter. That's Peter. If there is a ranking in any category of the apostles, Peter would be at the top of every list no matter what the rank is. Okay? When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Go down to verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? Call me crazy, but I bet Paul hurt Peter's feelings here. (laughs) All right. Now, if we put the pieces of Acts chapter 11 through 15, which is where the first missionary journey was taking place and these churches were formed... If you take the pieces, read Acts 11 through 15, you'll see that even at the very inception, there is a group of folks and they're starting to create unrest. You take the pieces of 11 through 15, then you take the scattered pieces of all Galatians together, and here's what you get. You get these secondary tier leaders. Secondary tier leaders coming out of the church from Jerusalem, the mother church, right? Somehow associated with James. But don't think of it like they're an official committee coming from James. Think of them like a bunch of rock star groupies coming from James. They have no official status, but somehow they got his name. And so they, they, were, very, they, they were very concerned about personal purity standards in God's churches. And so they appointed themselves as the church purity police. And what they did is they went to all these churches that Paul planted in Galatia, the Roman province of what is modern-day Turkey, and they went to inspect those churches and see how they're measuring up to the purity standards that they're concerned about. You get a picture of this in Galatians 2, verse 4. Look at there. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped into us to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ get the picture? Now, the church purity police did not like what they saw in these new churches that Paul planted. Standards were too low. Spiritual performance needed to be bolstered a bit, okay? Now, this past Thursday morning, I'm working out the Y. I get done, I go in to clean up, and there's just me and an older gentleman in the locker room. He's finished on his way out. I'm finished on my way to get cleaned up. And I said the perfunctory, hey, how you doing? But I really think I meant it this time, honestly. How are you doing? And he said, good now, because he's done with his workout, right? And then I walk by him. I'm on my way to, to the showers, right? And he says this, I really should say good now, because now I feel better about myself. I went in the showers and I'm thinking, yeah, that's the human heart. There is an insatiable craving and longing and need for us to feel good about ourselves. 
And these purity police folks were going through the churches of Galatia with that driving need to feel good about themselves. But what they were doing and what you and I tend to do in order to feel good about ourselves is that we turn to spiritual performance to get the good feeling. In other words, we try to be okay and we try to find soul security and soul blessing, right? What Paul would call, if he was talking to us, he'd say, you're trying to be justified by making ourselves righteous. In other words, we're trying to feel good about ourselves based on our own record, our own goodness, our own greatness. We try to feel good about ourselves, have a self-approval, or we try to feel good about ourselves by having the approval of others, not God's approval. Do you see how this works? So what happens here is Spiritual performance becomes a savior. It becomes your justification, to use Paul's language. It becomes salvation. How do we know this? Because that's the exact language that Paul uses in verses 6 through 8. You've deserted him for another gospel, another savior. You see the language? And that's why he says anathema. There is no other salvation. There is no other justification than the one that God's putting forth in Galatians. Okay? So everything hangs on the hope of the gospel. Now, in order to make the purity standards stick in Galatians, what they had to do is they had to begin to sow distrust in Paul as a person, as an apostle, so they can get to the message. You have to. In order to make their purity standards stick in the churches that they're going to, they have to lower their hero down a notch or two or three. The one that planted these churches. And so what they did is they attacked his his being an apostle. Because what God has done is that God has connected his message to his original messengers. So if you mess with the messenger, you mess with his message. Okay, Now, do we do that today? You mess with me, and you mess with the message. No. The messengers wrote down the message. So now, if you mess with the scripture, you mess with the message. Do you see? So what these guys did is they came through, and they started saying stuff like, he's not really an apostle. You see, apostles must be eyewitnesses. They had to see the resurrected Jesus and they had to be commissioned by the resurrected Jesus himself. Now we, on the other hand, we know James, the brother of Jesus. So we have a closer connection to Jesus than Paul does. And so Paul begins his letter by saying, Paul, apostle. There's no and in the original language. Paul. Apostle, not from men, and not through any man. Paul goes right to the heart of it. He doesn't like to talk about himself, but because of that connection, he's got to talk about himself, and he basically is saying, no man sent me. The resurrected Redeemer sent me. When you look at the two prepositions, it's just for your benefit 
when he says, not from men nor through man, the from is source. In other words, he's saying, my apostleship didn't start because of some man. It doesn't originate with any man. And then it's not mediated through any man. It's not some man came and laid hands on me and I got apostolized. The resurrected Christ appeared to me on the road to Damascus and called me and sent me. And I didn't need the other 11 or you to verify that. Okay? That's how Paul begins. So once he's done with that, though, he just spends a couple of, and you go through the rest of the letter, we're going to see he talks about himself a little bit more. But when you hear Paul talk about himself, it's always like pulling teeth. It's always like, he doesn't want to talk about himself, but he's talking about himself because he's got to establish the apostleship messenger connection because the, the message is most important. Okay? So immediately goes into the message. Now watch what the, here's the first message you get. This is the very first message from God that you get. Here it is. You ready? Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Here it is. Who raised him from the dead. Wow. I was scrambling, think, looking at all the different, new, all the scholars trying to say that is the first time that's ever happened that he talks about the resurrection before the cross wow i still need to check that down because i think it was only two people that said that you know you want three that's my standard now when we try to feel good about ourselves through spiritual performance we need to know something when you live to avoid sin you need to deeply hear something when you strive to be perfect, you need to take something into your soul. When you try and we try to control our world, we need to wake up to something again. When we try to be okay and righteous and justified on our own record, we desperately need to hear something again. Do you know what it is? The resurrection. The church purity police were trying to make themselves righteous. They were trying to raise themselves from the dead. The church purity police were trying to find cosmic acceptance and approval and affirmation from their spiritual performance. They were trying to get cosmic approval from self-approval and the approval of others, not from the approval of God. And so what they need and what we need, the first thing we need to hear is the resurrection. Because the resurrection, the resurrection is the raising from the dead of the only person on the face of the earth and out all generations that was righteous. Only a righteous person is raised from the dead. And so what the resurrection does, as Paul starts with the resurrection, he says Jesus raised from the dead because the resurrection is God shouting to the ends of the world and to the ends of all history that I have, this person, is the only righteous person on the face of the earth, the only accepted and approved and affirmed person on the face of the earth. And it's not that the resurrection proved his righteousness. I should say it this way. 
It's not that the resurrection made Jesus righteous. It's that the resurrection proved that he was righteous. Only the righteous are raised from the dead. And so the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus is the loudest sermon and the most visual big screen display that there's only one righteous person who ever lived and his name is Jesus Christ. Your standards mean nothing. That's what Paul is saying. And that's what we need to hear. Now, this craving for righteousness, this craving to make ourselves rise from the dead, this craving to to make ourselves righteous is not just a religious pursuit. In other words, Pulitzer Prize winner Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, says, the non-religious person still has this need to feel heroic. Isn't that great? He has this need to feel heroic about himself or herself. He goes on to say, to merge himself with some higher self-absorbed meaning. I mean, turn on the radio today and you'll see the craving for cosmic approval and affirmation is on every lyric. I mean, here's one popular song. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're not okay. You're not a righteous person. You're not approved and accepted until somebody loves you. And today we'll look in our culture and that we might not be like the religious person who's seeking spiritual performance to make themselves okay. We could be trying to make ourselves okay through people loving us and approving us, right? Same thing, same thing. Now, the first thing that Paul does is he says, listen, the resurrection, the resurrection puts forward what all of us long for and crave for. Jesus gets what you long for. Divine affirmation, praise, acceptance, declaration of being righteous. So there now is a way to get cosmic favor. There now is a way for you and me to hear in the deepest parts of our soul, this is, this is my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. And hear it so that it sings and puts you together in the deepest parts of your being. And the answer is, how do you do that? Look at the empty tomb. Look at the resurrection. Because here's the only one that got it. But he didn't just do it for himself. He did it for others. And so when we do trust in Jesus, his righteousness, his affirmation, acceptance, approval from God is yours. Wow. That will put you together. Now, how else do you do that, though? How else do we live this third way? This third way of of really resting, really looking to the cosmic favor that comes from God through the resurrection and righteousness of another. 
Not from self-approval, self-righteousness, self-justification, or from the approval of others, the justification of others. How do you live this way? Well, it does mean looking at the resurrection. It does mean seeing that you rose and you have the righteousness of another. That's part of it. But there's also another part of it. I think it's even, it's even a little more personal. And it keeps going on with this message. You look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Technically, all you need to know about this is when you're delivered from the present evil age, it's taking you out of one kingdom, putting you in another kingdom, and the kingdoms go side by side. It's taking you out of one age, the present evil age, placing you in another age called the kingdom of God that exists, coincides with this one, but you're in another one. You're a citizen of another kingdom. And in that citizenship, you've got legal and relational realities going on here. Personal stuff and objective salvific stuff. Now here's the point. Jesus willingly stepped into the depths of death to bear the debt of your sin before the resurrection. So this righteousness, acceptance, and approval that the resurrection sings from every mountaintop and that the angels look at and are like, wow. Before that happens, he went into the valley, not of the shadow of death, but the valley of ultimate death. The death of death. And he did so willingly, voluntarily. He didn't, he didn't do so because he was forced to. He didn't do so because he was angry. He didn't do so because he was helpless. He didn't do so feeling sorry for himself. He went willingly. And only, brothers and sisters, someone that goes like that loves you. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, I know Jesus loves me, but now God has to love me. You know, because Jesus did it, God's now like, he's got to love me. You know, he loves me, but it's more like, yeah, I got to because of my son. <laughs> you know, so we go through life. Yep, I'm the adopted stepchild. And the answer is yes, you are adopted. And you're loved with as much love that he loves Jesus. Okay? But just in case you're thinking that God now has to love you and now he loves you because of what Jesus did. Look at the phrase that comes after that. Look at the phrase in verse 4. According to what? Jesus gives himself willingly because he loves you. People get that. We get that. But notice who else was willing? According to the will of God our Father, of our God and Father. In other words, the reason why Jesus went to the cross is because God loves you. Not to get love for you. So here's what we got. We have at the cross on big screen television the love of God on display for you. 
deep cosmic affirmation, approval, and acceptance is wound into that love he has for you, and he makes it official by taking away your, your debt of sin and giving you the righteousness and resurrection of another. Brothers and sisters, if we get that love, you know what that does? That love, that cosmic favor, replaces self-approval and the approval of others. It forces us out. If John was here, he'd say, look, perfect love drives out fear. That's what he would say. Replaces it, pushes it out. All right, we got to end. There's still one thing that's loose end here, isn't there? Because I know some of you are thinking, but shouldn't there be purity standards? That's usually what you hear. That's usually what I hear. Every time we talk on something like this, there's always, but wait a minute, what about? What about? Shouldn't there be purity standards? We can't go crazy (laughs) like the church at Corinth, right? And then others of you here are thinking, yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying. I get that everything hangs on the hope of the gospel, but I'm still not making the connection between passionate personal obedience and the gospel. I don't get the connection. So give me two more minutes. Here's the first. Those of you that are concerned about purity standards, these are two things I want you to think about. Be careful not to think you or we as a church are above the sinful actions in Corinth. Okay? Do not think that. 11 years in pastoral ministry, I've seen every one of those sins. Not all in this church, not all in me, but in other churches and other ways because we're a connectional denomination. Okay? All of them but one. I have not seen the Lord's Supper intoxications. It's just real hard with that little, <laughs> little deal. It's just very hard to do. But you never know. We have a church feast and... So maybe we make a policy. Only small cups. Do you see the logic though? Brother, I'm, I'm, I'm serious though. Do you see the logic? The logic is try to control the heart with a behavior, a policy. And Paul says, you want to change, I'm going to give you the gospel to your heart. And you're free. Okay? Now, second, purity standards do not equal biblical purity. Look at verse 10. For I am now, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is accusing those that hold these purity standards of not approving, not seeking the approval and the cosmic favor of God, but seeking the approval and cosmic favor of themselves and others. Keeping standards doesn't equal biblical purity. According to Paul and according to the New Testament, a heart that's anchored deeply in the love of God that we just talked about, deeply in the resurrection and righteousness of another that we just talked about, swims in it, saturated in it, rolls with it. That heart is passionate about obeying. And that's true obedience. Okay? All right. Uh, those that are trying to make the connection between obedience and the gospel, here's how I want to answer that. Abraham Lincoln went to a slave market. He noticed a young, beautiful African-American woman, and she was being auctioned off to the highest bidder. He bid on her, and he won. He could see anger in her eyes when he did. 
She flashed at him once she realized who got him, got her. And he could, he could read her thoughts. Another white man. It's going to buy me, use me, discard me. Lincoln walked off with his property. Then he turned to her and said, you're free. Yeah, what does that mean? She says. It means you're free. And she says, does it mean that I can do whatever, does it mean I can say whatever I want to say? And he smiles and says, yeah, it means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean I can be whatever I want to be? Yeah, you're free. You can be whatever you want to be. doesn't mean I can go wherever I want to go, live where I want to live, do what I want to do. Yes. Yes, it does. You're free. And tears well up in her eyes. And she says, then I'll go with you. That's obedience. That's the obedience of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this message is you're free. And free people, free people want to go home with him.